Welcome to the Pod of Asclepius, your fortnightly healthcare technology podcast for the technical crowd. Sponsored by the American Statistical Association and the Institution of Engineering and Technology. We're bringing the technical experts of engineering, entrepreneurship, data science and regulation straight to your earbuds. No fluff, no sale pitches, just important technical ideas described well to keep you up to date. All in the time it takes to get to work. And here's your host. Hey folks, welcome back to the show. Today is part two of our episode talking about the activities and opportunities within the American Statistical Association section on medical devices and diagnostics, or MDD for short. We're really lucky to have the MDD section's support of the podcast and the access it provides to experts like Greg Maislin and Martin Ho, who are back with us today. We'll focus today on what I think is probably one of MDD's best programs. It's the MDD ID Exchange which I believe this year they've opened up to all ASA members. Martin, is that right? Yes. Yeah, and it's a program that excels at pairing junior and senior statisticians on topics of interest, where you get a lot of value for your time commitment. But first, Greg, you really have a long view on the MDD section's activities. Could you tell us a little bit about that and uh, how you got started with the section? Sure, thanks, Glenn. So, of course, my name is Greg Maislin. I'm Principal Biostatistician of Biomedical Statistical Consulting, which is a CRO that specializes in clinical trials for medical devices. I'm also Adjunct Professor of Statistics and Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. And one of the things that I liked is that you had a really long view on the section's activities. Uh, You've been involved since even before the section was founded. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? I joined the ASA in 1983 as a graduate student in the statistics department at Penn. However, it wasn't until 2010 that I attended my first JSM, Joint Statistical Meetings in Miami, when I was inspired and excited by the opportunity to present some original work on propensity score designs that was co-authored by Don Rubin, co-inventor of propensity score methodology. Um, And this arose from some mutual work in a medical device clinical trial. I was a bit awed by the rich diversity of interests and people in our community and by the wealth of experience and technical expertise available to be shared by those attending the conference. Of course, I ended up at the business meeting for the special interest group in medical devices and diagnostics. The next year, the group was going to apply to the council sections to be admitted as an ASA section. In preparation for this, the group needed to hold its first election for the first time. When Greg Campbell, who was head of biostatistics at CDRH at the time asked for volunteers, I found my arm raised. And before I could change my mind, I was volunteered and have been active ever since. Well, you've certainly kept your hand raised since then. I don't think there's a single MDD activity that I've attended that you haven't been involved. Could you tell us what you're up to now for the section? I enjoyed contributing to the group, now a section as part of the nominating committee for the first few years. And then in 2016, I was nominated and elected as the section representative to the Council of Sections, and I'm currently serving my last year of the three-year term. Well, you've also seen the session grow significantly since that first year. The medical devices and diagnostics section includes nearly 500 statisticians interested in these topics um, from industry, academia, and FDA. And for the MDD Idea Exchange, which is today's main topic, The first time I had heard about it was last year. So when did the ID exchange get started and who got the ball rolling? So last year, uh, Hava Zibman and Joanne Lin led MDD's first ID exchange. This was motivated by ASA's initiative for mentoring. 
And Hava and, and Joanne decided that we would do a little bit of a different take on mentoring. We would have an idea exchange. There are not so many ways for statisticians to get involved uh, with each other or, or who are interested in statistical methods and applications in medical devices and diagnostics to get to know each other. This is a great program. It does not involve a large commitment of time, yet provides an opportunity to discuss. Um, I participated last year and appreciated the opportunity to get to know our team members. Um, I'll mention that Glenn was one of our team members last year. And to learn in a low-key, encouraging, and small group environment. And right off the bat, I think you've hit a key point. You get a lot of bang for your buck uh, in the MDD ID exchange. Uh, you know, there's at least one senior member in each group who really knows the topic. So if you come into the ID exchange less familiar with the chosen topic, you can get up to speed quickly. You can hone in on the key ideas. You save a lot of time by avoiding the tangents and dead ends as you get up to speed. So what's happened since the first year? Following up on a successful first year, in the second year, the MDD Idea Exchange Program is led by Peter Lamb, Greg Jin, as well as Hava Zinman and Joanne Lin. So participants are paired with three to five fellow statisticians, and we're encouraged to talk about the topics, but also talk about career development in general and other factors that just may be of interest to us. So it's pretty informal, but we do have an organizing topic. The emphasis of the program is learning how to learn, sharing ideas, and finding resources. And the philosophy of the program is that people at all seniority levels should see themselves as both teachers and learners. Typically, team members meet twice a month for 30 minutes to an hour from September to December. And then starting in January, we do it all again with either the same team or a different team. Yeah, it's definitely interesting that so many of the people who were involved in initiating and leading the MDD ID exchange came from the FDA. Martin, do you have any comments or thoughts on how this fits in with the greater plan of increasing conversation between regulatory industry and academia for our section? Thank you for this opportunity for me to make some comments about this outstanding project. So I would say that I think uh, this idea exchange program is the brainchild between uh, Harvard and Joanne. So I just want to say that at the very beginning, uh, we were just looking at uh, the survey that we conducted among our uh, MDD section members, and it shows a very strong need of professional development. So one of the usual space that people would need some advice in is career development. And uh, when we're talking about this, Cindy Yang and I, we're thinking about uh, how about a traditional uh, mentorship program. And at that point, I think that uh, mentorship program has been here for a while. And I wanted to hear what, you know, I want to hear some new ideas coming from people that we are so proudly recruited over the years. So I have personally invited Hava and Joanne. They both are very creative in their work, in my experience working with them. So I really cherish their opinion. So after uh, you know two short discussions, we find out that perhaps instead of having a unidirectional transfer of knowledge from the mentor to the mentee, rather let's make it a win-win solution so that we can have both people who are being the teachers, but also as a students at the same time. So this is the birth of this idea coming from Harper and Joanne. And since then, they take up this idea and, and run with it. 
you know, thanks to their outstanding leadership, they have think they have talked about and they have figured out what would be a good way to first doing a pilot pilot phase and then how to unroll them in a more sustainable and adaptive manner. Which I think uh, yet uh, another evidence that showing both their talents in terms of growing a program from scratch to a program that can be useful, relevant, and meaningful to our session member. So again, I mean, this is a really outstanding achievement、uh, from both of them, and、uh, I, I applaud them. Yeah, I'll just second that.、Uh, Jai and Lin and Chao are both statisticians after my own heart, very much from the perspective of doing membership surveys and then really acting on them and putting in the footwork to create something that the members really ask for. I think that really also underlines yet again how the MDD section is very much interested in engaging its members and providing the services that they ask for, even though those services do create quite a bit of work. It's A very motivated group of leaders working to create good career opportunities for not only senior members but also the junior members looking to increase their skills and their wherewithal and develop their own talents. Yes. So I also wanted to perhaps add a comment about the FBA's role in that.、Um, the reasons why, you know, at the very beginning of the concept stage. That only FBA people was involved is mostly because of the convenience of meeting and brainstorming on campus. So it says a lot about you know having people in one space that would greatly facilitate the communication and idea exchange and brainstorming performance of the group. But then I mean I believe that is a built-in feature of the program that after they finish the pilot stage. In、um, growing the program into a more mature and, and bigger program, they have recruited two industry counterparts to be、uh, their partners and make the program more diverse in terms of the program's leadership and have more ideas and also you know have more capacity in organizing more、uh, activities. But just want to say that we understand、uh, at the very beginning of the brainstorming, it could be very time-consuming if the communication is not、uh, in person. So it's just a matter of the convenience of me, Cindy, Joanne, and Harper being close to each other, you know, on the same campus. But just by coincidence. Yeah, I think that is important to clarify that you know the selection of these leaders it is not done to create just you know a, a small insular group. But you know, it's basically it's benefiting from people being close by, then immediately pulling in more people for more ideas. As you know, I work largely from a home office, so the main person I talk to on a day-to-day -day basis is myself, and we generate fantastic ideas together. <laughs> But yeah,、uh, sometimes it's very helpful to extend beyond that and、uh, talk to other people. So, Greg, at last year's idea exchange, our group discussed real-world evidence and how to implement it into decision making. What are the subjects being covered this year?、Um, I think it'd be interesting to hear what the topics are. There's about nine topics this year.、Um, we're broken up into groups. The topics are data visualization, development, identification of networking skills and habits and opportunities, keeping current with new statistical developments, leadership and growing your influence, machine learning for medical devices, group one, machine learning for medical devices, group two, statistical programming. Writing as a statistician, and the group that I'm participating with, with、um, Dong Fengshi and Cindy Yang, is the relationship between Bayesian and frequentist statistics. I wouldn't mind circling back to hear more about the machine learning medical devices, but for the moment, could you give us some more details about the progress and what's being done in your own group? 
Um, I can say that my discussions with Dong Feng and Cindy have been really interesting. Uh, Bayesian statistics are used in CDRH more than other branches of FDA. The guidance on Bayesian statistics put out by CDRH in 2010 discusses evaluation of frequentist operating characteristics for Bayesian adaptive designs. So this topic is very relevant to our work and is really interesting from a philosophical point of view. Part of my motivation and interest of this topic comes from a question I was asked by a medical writer for a paper summarizing a trial that used Bayesian posterior probabilities to define study success. The medical writer asked how she could very simply explain what a Bayesian posterior probability was to a surgeon. Now, this appears to be a simple question, but providing a simple answer is not so simple. Therefore, our group has discussed some expert opinions that we have found in the literature regarding the definitions and relationships of probability contrasting the frequentist and Bayesian definitions. And there's even another approach that is less well-known, fiducial probability, that plays a role in the history of understanding what probability is. And very quickly, fiducial inference being a brand of inference developed by R.A. Fisher, or at least, you know, Fisher tried to develop it. What are the sources that you're cracking into for this discussion? Um, I'll mention just three citations or, or three references that we have discussed. There's a, a great book by Gelman et al. that many people may be aware of, Bayesian Data Analysis. Chapter 1 is good in general, and Section uh, 1.5, 1.4 are really good in describing Gelman's and other co-authors' philosophy towards what probability is. Then there's Cadane's Principles book. Uh, chapter 1 and Section 2.13 talk about his difficulty in thinking about probability as being objective at all, which is an interesting perspective. And finally, Don Rubin's paper, Bayesianly Justifiable and Relevant Calculations for the Applied Statistician from 1984 Annals of Statistics, is really a wonderful paper describing this great authors and, and researchers' ideas in this topic, which are, again, very relevant to the work we do with CDRH, where we have to provide frequentist operating characteristics for our Bayesian adaptive designs. And all of this has been so interesting that we plan on continuing our discussion in January for the second session. And in that session, we're going to look at the ASA statement on p-values that was provided a few years ago. And in particular, very recently, there was a free access journal in the American Statistician about p-values and moving beyond a world of p-values. There's 43 articles by some really great statisticians and thinkers. And we're hoping that by delving into that literature, we'll be able to develop a better intuition ourselves about what probability is. So very quickly, uh, the ASA statement on p-values was a statement released a few years ago to address what many in the scientific community and the statistical community considered to be the use and abuse of p-values. Basically, in a nutshell, people thought that this yes-no approach to p-values being above or below some threshold was being used to essentially supplant scientific reasoning that p-values are a piece of evidence, but they aren't an endpoint in their own right. Um, so basically what the statement did was it reaffirmed the purpose of p-values and provide some bullet point guidance on their use. And what we thought that this was meant to address was uh, basically to start putting p-values back in their proper place and with implications for things like scientific replicability, the further funding of research, and understanding of which directions of scientific research we should be going in.
Well, so we all understand that in a clinical trial that, for example, just misses its study success criterion based on a p-value, maybe the p-value is 0.053, that often there is a lot of other evidence. And when you look at the, the totality of the evidence, often it's really clear that this treatment is doing good for a lot of patients. Yet maybe we missed the single primary endpoint because the, that primary endpoint may not have been chosen as the optimal one. So in, in what frame of reference can we say that we have the substantial um, evidence of, of effectiveness that's needed for a regulatory body to conclude that the device is effective? We're hoping to tune our intuition and learn about what others are thinking in terms of portraying that evidence in a compelling way that isn't so dependent on a single go-no p-value decision. So as you know, someone who spends a lot of time wrangling nasty data into a nice format, and also a lot of time tuning models to better encapsulate the oddities of the data dynamics. I think a uh, particularly compelling or non-compelling aspect about p-values for me is that you know the p-value comes from two things. It comes from a test statistic and it comes from a null hypothesis. And the test statistic is derived from nasty data. You take a lot of typically nasty data and you sort of condense it down into just one metric. And then you have your null hypothesis that's based on assumptions that are probably only, you know, strictly true for the simplest of examples. So in modeling, we take these things with a grain of salt because we know that we're bound to violate the assumptions sooner or later, and especially when it comes to summarizing nasty data. But with hypothesis testing, you're summarizing nasty data, and the assumptions are both unstated and untrue. And so a Bayesian approach, at least the subjectivity of the assumptions is out there in the open. The assumptions are sticking out there, you know, like a sore thumb, ready for critique and adjustment. And critique and adjustment are, you know, much better aligned for the scientific method. And if you like things like frequentist confidence intervals, you know, as a form of sensitivity analysis, well, the Bayesian approach lets you actually formalize sensitivity even to the assumptions themselves, which seems much more elucidating. Are those the types of benefits that you're looking at for your more Bayesian approach to these issues? I think so. I think one of the criticisms of a Bayesian approach is this subjectivity. And I think some people just believe that the frequentist approach is completely objective. But that's not really true. There's a lot of subjective judgments that go into a frequentist analysis, but there's less of the ability to formalize what those assumptions are. So I think you're exactly right that the, that the Bayesian framework does give us an opportunity to more formalize these assumptions. Whereas in the frequentist uh, approaches, often those assumptions are driven by subjective considerations, but there's no way in that paradigm to elucidate them in a clear fashion. And while we're on the topic, you know, a cousin of the p-value is the power calculation. And power calculations, as you know, are fraught with assumptions that are pretty much sure to be violated, especially when you're having an experimental design of any particular complexity. And not to force another responsibility on you because you're already doing quite a bit, but will your work be providing any guidance on that issue as well, sort of more Bayesian-style power calculations? Well, sure. One of the main things one does in a Bayesian power calculation is clinical trial simulation. And to do power calculations, one needs to do clinical trial simulation in all but the most elementary cases. And those simulations should include varying key assumptions to understand the impact on the required sample size. So again, we calculate the frequentist power and frequentist type 1 error for Bayesian adaptive designs. Um, I feel like there are a number of pure Bayesians 
who would balk at the idea that that's needed. But from a regulatory point of view, FDA needs to be able to have an understanding of what control of type 1 errors in order to protect the public from ineffective devices. So there's this tension between the requirement of doing power calculations from a frequentist point of view to demonstrate frequentist power and type 1 error control and um, a Bayesian perspective where those really are not necessary to justify the approach. So these clinical trial calculations become paramount. And the 2010 Bayesian uh, guidance document that CDRH put out is a good first reference on the kinds of simulations that are needed to justify power and control type 1 error. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think it would be really fun actually to have an episode on clinical trial simulation where someone comes on and they review where simulations have use and also sort of the variety of simulation approaches that have been used. You know, having dipped my toe just a little bit into clinical trial power calculations and then being immediately plagued with these uncertainties saying, you know, I think my assumptions are reasonable, but what happens if they're wrong? And if they're wrong, do we just totally waste our time with this entire trial? And then if we have data knowing that patients are heterogeneous in some particular way, you know, what effect will that create? And how can we let our uncertainty about the patient's heterogeny, how will that actually affect the uncertainty and the variability and what might be the total trial's outcome and our calculation of, you know, the effect size of the thing we're trying to observe? It would be really nice for someone to come on and have a review of that because there's a lot of interesting work being done there. Uh, it can really elucidate how a trial might vary and how an experiment might vary. Sure. There are some people doing great work in this area. Well, since you mentioned it earlier, I just want to circle back to ask about the two groups in the idea exchange looking at machine learning on medical devices. As you know, Greg, that's a subject very near and dear to my heart, and the fact that the MDD created not one but two groups on this highlights how they're really taking leadership in examining what I think is a really important development in our field. So I know why I'm wrapped up in the topic of machine learning for wearables, but why are these participants coming together to examine the issue? Uh, it is really interesting that we had to accommodate the great interest in machine learning for medical devices in two different sessions. And I, I think it's because in medical devices, the opportunity to collect data in a streaming fashion and to incorporate lots of information over time um, is something that is becoming feasible. And statisticians interested in medical devices, I think many of us are interested in looking at new ways of incorporating these rich and diverse sources of data. So it'll be exciting to hear what our colleagues have been talking about. I'll, I'll mention that in just a couple of weeks, we're going to have our final session for the fall semester, so to speak, and I'll learn about what these people have been talking about, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about what the topics that they covered and to maybe give some inspiration to some further learning on our parts and the kind of work that we do. Yeah, well, I think this is one more example of the MDD section really getting involved early on an issue that is going to be of increasing importance to the healthcare sector. You know, having people like Martin Ho and others working in the FDA, but also involved in uh, discussions like this. Because, as you know, uh, devices like wearables, they have gotten a lot of traction already, for example, in hospitals uh, to detect patient deterioration and activity in that way. Uh, they're already, obviously, quite frequent in the consumer market. But it's really cool that we're seeing them now start to bridge the gap into pharmaceuticals. You know, pharmaceutical companies are looking at these to say, how can we use these wearables to supplement electronic patient 
reported outcomes that are currently subjective versus a wearable that is more objective on the physiological measurements. And also help with things like adherence. So, you know, how can we use wearables to get a better assessment of whether or not patients are adhering? but also helping to assist them with adherence so you can get a better idea about how effective your clinical intervention actually is. And some other areas that I think are really cool is, you know, for example, uh, rare adverse events. You know, we have all these cardiovascular metrics out there, and we know that patients, when they're in a clinical trial, they are unhealthy. So when an unhealthy patient has a rare adverse event, we have to ask ourselves, is it because the risk of that adverse event was increased due to the treatment, or is it simply a natural increase in risk because we're conditioning on healthy patients to begin with? You know, as statisticians, we can't ignore the fact that when you condition on an unhealthy patient, you are essentially automatically increasing our chance of having those tail end events. So when you know you have an unhealthy patient, someone whose body's homeostatic mechanism is compromised in some way, and we know that they have these correlated risks and these comorbidities, there's several areas that the wearables could give you context. Of course, there's you know the time around the adverse events. You can see the actual physiology and see the physiological change as a patient nears or actually experiences adverse event. You know something that wouldn't be provided by the more sporadic uh, electronic patient reported outcome type of data. But you could also use it for things, for example, to see context in a pre-trial format. So greater continuity when you're screening patients before a trial begins. You have that huge depth of data that you can observe a patient. And not to diverge more off the topic, but, you know, there are things, for example, related to the conversation we're having about power calculations where, you know, you might be able to use these wearables to better stratify patients by their risk before they come into the trial. So you might be able to identify at-risk patients according to their digital phenotypes and then screen patients in with higher probability to ensure that you are recruiting a sufficient number of patients who will actually have the events of interest. So it's really cool to see, again, that conversation happening in the MDD with members from industry, with FDA experts, people in academia who are working on the more theoretical aspects of machine learning, and seeing that all come together. It's showing that I think MDD is really taking leadership on an important issue. That's really interesting. Um, the other hat I, I wear is my work at University of Pennsylvania, where I'm director of the biostatistics core for the uh, division of sleep medicine. And we look at now CPAP compliance. Nowadays, when you wear a CPAP monitor, the data is automatically recorded and put into the cloud. And we're able to access de-identify data and look at patterns of compliance. And it's not clear which patterns of compliance give rise to the best clinical outcomes. Is it that you have to wear it seven hours straight, or can you wear it five hours, or, or can you break it up? And there's initiatives looking at complex patterns of, of CPAP compliance and their relationship to clinical outcomes. I think that's a really interesting place for machine learning also to provide some insight because the way that you can determine what a compliance pattern is, it's easy to visualize it, but to actually get all of the features that are relevant is not so obvious. Yeah, and it definitely seems like for things like compliance patterns, it has to be something that is going to need to be very data-driven and data-understood because you can't really define these things a priori. You, you don't know in advance exactly what sort of the patterns are going to look like on individual patients in their approach to uh, compliance with clinical protocols. But one thing we know is that patients are very variable. And part of our jobs as statisticians is to understand that variability. And machine learning seems to be um, a fruitful approach to push those efforts forward. 
Yeah, and just to bring the conversation around again to simulation, it seems like these machine-derived features could also provide very nice inputs, you know, more empirical inputs to simulations. For example, when we we're trying to study the effect size of an intervention, and we have this ballpark idea of the baseline event rate or severity, whatever the outcome is, but the average is derived from, you know, these individual patients who are just all over the place. And a huge part of the variation across patients might actually just be the variation across their ability to adhere to the clinical protocol. So especially with something like lifestyle-induced chronic disease, a patient's disease state is a result of non-adherence to years of clinical advice. You know, they haven't been adhering to years, and which is why they have this clinical state to begin with. And when you add to that, that more adherence means, you know, more reminders that you're sick. And nobody likes to be reminded that they're sick. So the adherence actually works directly against the patient's own psychology. So I guess just to give a concrete example from my own area, you know, say you're using a device like a heart rate monitor to detect imminent adverse events. You know that the device itself actually performs at its task. And now what you want to do is pair it with another therapy, for example, more invasive treatment or therapy like a surgery. The surgery might correct the problem at its source, which is good long-term, but short-term there's a much higher risk due to the invasiveness of the procedure. So what you might want to do is use the device to capture the short-term risk and mitigate that short-term risk until the benefits of long-term risk come to fruition. In that case, something like adherence to just wearing the device is everything. You know, adherence is essential to actually having the, uh, this paired treatment. And so what you might want to do then is you've learned these machine learning patterns of adherence, how often they're wearing the device, for example, because you can see how often they're wearing the device because if it's sending you back measurements or not, you can look at the different patterns of usage and say, okay, well, if a patient stops wearing it six hours a day or eight hours a day, and then the device doesn't capture a deterioration or an imminent adverse event, well, then how's that going to affect my estimate of the effect size of the therapy as a whole? So what you could do is you could provide these different patient-specific observed empirical monitoring adherence patterns and actually see, well, if the patient is missing this time versus that time, how does that actually percolate? How does that magnify the effect or lack of effect? How does that affect the effect size? And then in turn, you might then want to set up further safeguards to make sure that the device is being worn consistently. Right. And this work is ongoing by many types of individuals. Um, we see new apps on phones all the time, and it's really a place where statisticians need to step up and take a lead in development so that the kinds of skills and tools and the way we think can be applied in, in this area. It's really great to have the MDD section being involved with this podcast and helping sort of curate a lot of the content that we're looking for. I think that People like you and Martin and the other executives on the committee have a very good finger on the pulse of what's important to know where the newest developments are going to be. And so it's really going to be great to hear more about some of those developments in the other activities that the MDD is doing to cover those and let people know what's going on. Greg, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate having experts like you involved and so active in the section is a tremendous service, you know, to keep the section's activities engaging and relevant and creating these really interesting conversations. It's great also to have your support for the podcast for selecting and curating content. Really looking forward to the updates on the groups in the machine learning for devices and wearables. And of course, getting some guidance from Greg and some thought leadership on Bayesian p-values. You know, it really helps everyone when expert practitioners really deep dive back into the fundamentals of these really practical issues. But until then, thanks again for coming on. Well, thanks, Glenn. Thanks for, um, for your leadership in the podcast. And I think it'll be a, a great way for statisticians like us to be in better communication. Take care. Bye-bye now. Thank you very much, Glenn. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
Well, that's it for this episode of The Pod of Asclepius. We hope you enjoyed it and will tune in for our next episode. If you're watching from YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to our channel and leave a like. You can also follow us on our other social media channels, including LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Have a great story or presentation that's ready for prime time? Or know someone who does? Drop Glenn an email because he'd be happy to hear from you. We would like to thank our sponsors from the American Statistical Association section on Statistical Learning and Data Science, section on Medical Devices and Diagnostics, and North Carolina Chapter, as well as the Institution of Engineering and Technology. The views expressed on the show are those of the speaker and not their employers, our sponsors, or anyone else not saying the words.